If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn now to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And uh, I'm going to ask uh, Nick Feliciano to come read. He'll begin reading in verse 22 of John 3. John 3 and verse 22. Morning. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourself bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. Rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. I really would like for us to set this story somewhat in our time so that we can understand, not just understand what is being taught there, but also, also really feel it. To do that, I want you to imagine with me that John is this great visionary for, like really a call on his life for something that God wanted to do. And he takes this step of faith. So John the Baptist takes a step of faith and he goes into ministry. So imagine he's either a leader or a pastor or someone that is starting a church. And something really, really clicks for John. So he's got a a strong message and a strong sense of calling. And immediately John receives reception. So people are buying in to what he has to tell them. And there are some early adopters of that message. There are some first followers of that message that John the Baptist is preaching. And because there are some of the early adopters, they serve these mission-critical roles at the beginning. So they're dependable and they're sacrificial. Any sort of startup ministry or, or anything has those people that play those foundational roles. And so that is some of the first followers of John would have had to do that. They would have had to get the word out. They would have had to organize what what the ministry of John would be. And momentum gathers, and John's ministry saw, like, significant growth. And if you were to ask any of his followers, or even the crowd that began to assemble and pay attention to what John was saying, they would say, this is a person 
that is adding value to what's going on. This is a person who's upsetting the status quo, but God is with him. God is present there. And John is on this great mission, and this mission of his is giving a message of the need for renewal and the need for turning and the need for uh, personal transformation. And he's seeing lives changed. And John the Baptist has this generous heart, it seems like, even toward others, so that one day his cousin comes. And nobody really knows who his cousin is. His cousin is named Jesus. And nobody's really paying attention to his cousin, but John stops everything he's doing, and he says, everyone here, everybody that's listening to me, now you need to listen to him. You need to listen to his message. You need, you need to pay attention to the books he's writing. You need to read those. You need to draw your attention to him. And, and as you can imagine, John giving this ringing endorsement that this man is from God. My cousin, who you've not even heard about, is the authoritative representative to us from God. When John announces this, inevitably, what happens is that some people stop following John and they start following Jesus. They begin to transfer some of their loyalty in that direction. At least that has to be in part based on John giving all of his credibility, all of his weight, all of his authority to Jesus. And imagine you are one of his first followers. You're with him at the beginning. You sacrificed for John to be known. You got the word out. You did everything he needed you to do. And now he's pointed to someone else. And, and then you watch as Jesus begins to gain greater and greater reception. People pay attention. Like there's a real traction for his ministry. He seems to have even greater growth and people are really paying attention to him. There's even rumors that he, Jesus does what John never did. And that's like signs and miracles. And, and everybody begins to pay attention to that. And the attention changes and and what even money might have and resources had been directed to John now gets transferred in and starts getting directed to fund Jesus' ministry and what he's doing. And maybe you're one of those first followers of John and you hear, you hear someone talking and you hear them allude to John the Baptist and say, man, he was something. But he doesn't even compare to this Jesus. I, I, there's, we've never seen anything quite like Jesus. And if you're a follower of John the Baptist in that moment, I wonder what you're thinking. I wonder what's going on in your heart. We actually know what some of his followers, some of the questions they were asking, some of the things they were wrestling with. And I think we have an opportunity this morning. Because as John hears what his first followers were thinking, the way he responds actually lets us look into our own heart. And then what John does so masterfully well is he takes that looking into our own heart and then he draws our attention to Jesus. He puts the focus, he, he lets us kind of gauge what's going on in my own heart, but then draws our attention to Jesus. So let's, let's start off with exactly what's happening. I've, I've given you some idea and context of the story, so maybe we feel it a little bit more. In verse 22 it says this, After this Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them, and he, being Jesus, was baptizing. Jesus was giving authoritative uh, action toward baptism. 
And this is a little bit different than the baptism of John because John was personal renewal. Jesus, it was much more identification with him, which is why we still baptize in the name of Jesus Christ because we're wanting to say we identify with him. But it says in verse 23, John also was baptizing, so he didn't quit baptizing. And their water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison the writer of this gospel actually gives us a window into when did this happen in the ministry of Jesus. And, and that's critical. So this detail is not unimportant. So actually, Jesus had not yet walked on the water. Jesus had not fed 5,000 hungry people. Jesus had not yet heard from, from uh, Peter, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus had not raised Lazarus from the dead. These are in the very early days of Jesus. And so John the Baptist is is teaching and he's baptizing and so is Jesus, but Jesus has not gained the head of steam you'll have by the end of this gospel. And then it says in verse 25, a discussion arose. I think that's a very polite translation. So other translations, I think, get more at the accurate word, which would be then an argument arose or then a dispute arose. And we might, we might anticipate that being between John's followers and Jesus' followers. But that's not actually what it says, is it? It says there, there arose a discussion or a dispute between John's followers, his disciples, and, and a particular Jew who is raising another question about purification. And I think what, what's implied there is he's raising another question of, John, what are you doing here? What authority do you have to be baptizing? What is actually your end game here? I think when... John's disciples hear this question again? I wonder if they just sigh deeply and go, do we have to validate ourselves again? John has already explained what he's doing. John has already told you what commission that he has. And now we're having to kind of rehash this again. He's having to validate himself again. It's one thing to answer the question, though, when it seems like you're on the rise and everybody's like paying attention to you and you're gaining in popularity, it's quite another thing when you're getting questions validating your ministry and things are not on the rise. Things are actually declining in the, in the way of popularity. And it seems like this just pushes John's disciples over the edge. And so they go and talk to John about it. It says in verse 26, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying something's changed, John. And like everybody who was really interested in your message and our message and kind of a part of what we were doing, they're going after Jesus now. They're paying attention to him now. And, and John, the, the problem is you can't even really say anything about it because you're the one that endorsed him to begin with. You're the one that put your, your seal of approval on him to begin with. What will John's response be? I think it's helpful to look at exactly how he answers that. Everybody's going after Jesus now. Because I think in it, we're going to learn some things about ourselves. So I don't think the primary lesson here is just one of 
an example that if you ever find yourself baptizing near the Jordan River and Jesus is baptizing on the other, other side, don't have a problem with that. It's okay. I don't think that's the message here. I think it goes much, much deeper. And I think it'll, it'll actually press on our hearts to understand, are we like John's disciples? You see, I, I recognize that John's disciples had some expectations of how this might go down. And I think that's why they were bothered at the instant popularity of Jesus. What they were experiencing didn't match their expectations. And it's hard to really analyze what we expect to get out of life, to get out of anything. But I think one of the expectations, and I get this based on John's response, one of the expectations that I think John's disciples had, and one that you might have as well, is often we think we deserve better than what we're getting. We think we deserve better than what we're getting. So John's followers know the early days, and they know now there's like diminishing crowds, and they sense we're losing steam and we're losing momentum. And the person that's actually gaining steam is the person that we gave his start anyway. And you can, you can imagine them saying, we have put in the effort. We have worked hard for this. We don't deserve our popularity to decrease. And let's face it, life will take us down that road sometimes where we look around and we feel like we're losing. And we feel like there is nothing I did to deserve that. We look around and we wonder, God, why are you doing this? I didn't deserve this. Something goes wrong and, 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 and we think, listen, I've put in the effort. I've tried. I look at someone in a similar stage of life as mine and I go, that doesn't seem right. I deserve at least what, they, what they're getting. At least that, if not more. It's a tough spot for us. And what, what actually moves our heart off of that kind of getting stuck in, I deserve this, I deserve better, I've earned something better than what I'm getting? The only thing that I think can move us off of that and undermine that earning sense is actually when we're content. And when we're content, that only comes when we realize that everything we do have is a gift. That makes us content. Which then makes us deal with this whole earning thing. Listen to what John says. John says in verse 27, he answered a person. This This is in reply to them saying, everybody's going after Jesus. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven, from God. Two entirely different mindsets. There's the mindset of, I've earned something. I've earned a lot. I've earned everything. I deserve it. And on the polar opposite of that is, everything is a gift. So many philosophies, so many even religions want to take us down the road of, you get what you deserve. That, that's karma. You just, you've, you've earned that, and that's the way eternity works. And this takes us down such a different road. We think, we think initially we want to kind of trade in the currency of rights and what we've earned and what we deserve. But actually it doesn't take very long in evaluating life to realize that if we think we can pull out the currency of earning and deserving, it actually is worthless currency before God. 
thinking you've earned a lot before God is like having a stack of Monopoly money. I guess you can spend it in some, some make-believe game, but it's not real. So thinking you've earned or deserved anything from God buys no immediate satisfaction. You're still left in the same place with, well, I, just, I, I, I deserve better, so, so what? So what now? And, and it also buys nothing spiritually. So because you like trot out everything you've earned, it's not as if God is going to one day go, I was clueless about how much you had done. You have really, you've nailed it. I, did, I had no idea. Do, do we really think we can spend that and God be impressed? And what about eternity? Heaven will not be a celebration of humans like saying, look what I deserve. I earned all this. This is what I deserved. I'm getting what's right now. I've earned everything you see. That will not be heaven. How different it is when you see, when you see things as a gift from God. When you can say with John, everything anybody does have is a gift. You begin to go into the world of verses like Philippians 4.19, which says, my God will supply everything I need, everything you need, according to his riches. You begin to hear the words of Jesus where he says that you can ask your heavenly father and your father knows how to give good gifts to your children, to his children. You go into the realm of Psalm 84, the Lord gives grace and glory. He keeps back nothing from his children. You begin to understand John three sixteen even in a deeper way. For God loved the world in this way. He gave. You begin to process verses like Romans 8 that, that tell us if God did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus, his son, give us everything freely? So the, the logic is this. The cross is meant to take us out of the realm of what we deserve and cause us to look in the heart of a good, good father. And so John could see the blessing of God the Father on his own life and his own ministry, but then he could notice what God was doing through Jesus, and he could say, what do we have that we, we ever earned to begin with? So what are our expectations? Are you kind of rattled right now because you say, I deserve better, I deserve better, I deserve more? John says, see everything in your life as a gift. So we got John's disciples going, wait a minute, everybody's going after Jesus. And there's another expectation that John is going to address. So the second expectation that I believe he addresses is the expectation we have where we think we should be at the center. You say the center of what? And I say the center of everything. How often do we think we should be? Now, we'd never say that like publicly. But how many of our actions show that we think that everybody should just like get on board with our agenda Everybody should really admire us as a person. Everybody should give us prominence. People should be taking note of us. I wonder if John, John's disciples looked and they thought, well, oh, my goodness, we were the ones that got to the Jordan River first. We're the ones that 
planted and tilled and like spiritually were working hard. We're the ones that we're, we're the ones that broke the ground here. We had the passion. We had the calling. We did the hard work. And now we're just kind of being moved to the side. And notice even the exaggeration. Everybody's going after Jesus now. Being at the center of the world is what we want, but it's a tough thing sometimes because life is fickle. People are fickle. Maybe popular one moment and then displaced in another moment. It reminds me, I know it's a trite thing, but it does remind me of walking into like a sports store where they have uh, all sorts of like hats and, and sweatshirts and jerseys. And I remember, I, I don't get fooled by this anymore, but I, I remember going into those stores and you look at where I always look and that's the sale rack. And like, if it's 20%, it's like, but like you see 80% off or something like that. And so you just kind of scan the the sale rack and you see your team's colors. And you go, hmm, 80% off. And then you walk up to that rack and you look at the jersey and the jersey is some knucklehead that got himself dismissed from the team that year. And they're having a fire sale on those jerseys. And then right next to that is the guy that got traded. And like, you, you don't care for that jersey anymore. He's playing with the other team now. And you wonder, there's a reason why. There's a reason why the trade in value. Because yesterday, that, or, or a month ago, or a year ago, that was the hot jersey. And now you can get it for 80% off. Do John's disciples feel some of that? We once were what everybody was paying attention to. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for how we feel sometimes. There was this day we could go back to when everybody kind of paid attention to us, but, but it's hard to come to terms when people don't want to wrap their lives around our feelings, our wants, our agenda, our perceptions of what they're thinking. Matter of fact, the people that often are most frustrating in our lives, we see very clearly they, they're just self-centered. They just think the whole world's about them. But what we fail to realize is we're that person all too often. We see it so well in other people and so hard for us to see it in our own lives. And part of good parenting is trying to lovingly and firmly remind your kids, you're not the center of the universe. You're not the center of the universe. But what we try to tell our kids, we don't even get that message sometimes. What can help us here? How can John be okay with diminished crowds, less popularity? I'll tell you one way, and we see it in verse 28. Because John says this. John says this in verse 28. You yourselves bear me, bear me witness that I always was saying anyway. I always said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. So John, what helped him is that he lived in reality, and reality was he wasn't the center of the universe. He says, I'm not the Christ. I never was. That's, that's not what I said from the beginning. I was the one who has been appointed and anointed, sent from God to save the world. I'm not the Christ. I'm pointing to that one who is. You might have expected something different. But John says, there is one. There is one who will save the world. I'm not him. There's one who will deliver you. I'm not him. It was always my mission to prepare the way and then get out of the way. As a matter of fact, John gives us another analogy. There's something else that he points to. He says, the one who has the bridegroom, bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, or we might say in our, in our term, terminology, the, the best man who stands and hears the bridegroom rejoices greatly at his voice. 
Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. John says, I'm not the Christ. And furthermore, I don't think I should be at the center. I am happy and honored to be the best man in this whole arrangement. In that culture, the the best man was the one that organized and planned, kind of the wedding coordinator and the host. And John might have even asked his followers, who picks the best man? The groom does. And what an honor that I was picked to go before Jesus Christ. What an honor that I receive a commission from the groom to play a role in his mission of salvation. What an honor that I get to be so close to the groom that I get to hear his voice. What an honor that I get to communicate his voice to others and his wishes to others. What an honor that I get to lead others in marking out how special he is. What an honor. John would say, it is my greatest joy. My joy is fulfilled. It's complete. At getting to be the best man standing right next to the groom saying, this is the center of attention. I'm not trying to take the groom's role. My joy is at its peak when I'm doing exactly what I've been commissioned to do. Deep down, it makes me ask, like, am I satisfied? Could I say my joy is fulfilled in doing whatever, whatever the groom needs? Is my joy complete if I'm not the center of everybody's world? Or do I need that little recognition to say, people think you matter? Do I need a few things going favorably in my career, in my family, so that I stay at the center? I'm John's no robot here. So he would have the same kind of feelings we would have had. He will wrestle through doubts and, and uncertainty when he's put into prison. But his joy here is deeply rooted in being close to Jesus. What do you expect? John says, I never expected to be the center anyway. And so when the time comes to just get out of the way for the groom... It's my deepest joy to do that. One more thing we might tend to expect, and I think John addresses, is in our lives, we tend to think our lives should always be on the rise. I don't know how how long you've walked with the Lord, identified yourself as a Christian, but it's natural for me to think life should be getting easier, not harder. Life should be getting better. Life ought to be simpler. Life ought to be more hassle-free especially if I try to do things that are right, especially if I try to do things the right way. I ought to be able to see, like, just everything getting a little bit better. But often we don't. Often the, the immediate dreams we have don't come true. It, it's, not, it's not unlikely that aging will be harder than we thought it might be, or a job will come up and, and we don't get it. Or or a job never comes available. Or family blows up even though we're trying to do our best. Even though we're trying to to give everything we've got to make our family work. And I'm not sure whether you have to be a certain age or a certain stage of life to have the expectation that things ought to be getting better. And to look around and go, things are getting worse. And you say, even kind of complicating that is, that piggybacks on, I deserve better and things are getting worse. And we get frustrated. Because this isn't the script we would have written. It's not the one we want to live out. When John looks at how his life is going compared to the life of Jesus, it's not like he picks up any sort of animosity or anger. 
But I'm impressed that he doesn't even have like resignation. I might even be tempted to go, well, it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. I guess you can't win them all. But actually what John does, and I, and I want us to go to this place, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what needs, look at the word must. That's what needs to happen. It should be this way. If Jesus comes into the world, and he is the son of God as he claims to be, his life trajectory should be on the incline, even as mine is on the decline. If it's a zero sum where someone wins and someone loses, mine should be declining. The purpose of God was never to have dual messiahs. Kind of me and Jesus saving the world. Yeah, both of us, you know. That was never his plan to begin with. There aren't going to be two heroes to this story. There's not going to be two main characters to this story. And John gets that, doesn't he? Jesus would tell us, lose your life for my sake in the gospel. That's not easy to trust. It isn't easy to adjust our expectations on anything that I've just talked about. John won't just tell you, chalk it up to faith. Fate, that's, that's where you're living. That's, that's what it is. What John will do is say, to help you deal with your expectations of what you thought I would be, or you thought life should go, you need to see your heavenly father as a good, good father. And what's more, you need to see the groom who came on a rescue mission for a bride that was going to perish had he not come. You need to see Jesus Christ and ask, like, what does he mean to you? I love the fact that we're coming to the Lord's table today, the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper gives us just this concrete, visible reminder that, yeah, Jesus came on a rescue mission for sinners who he will make his bride. And that rescue mission, he loved the world so much that he gave. And, and Jesus Christ gave. And so we take common bread and we say, this points to Christ's body, which was broken for us. And we take a cup and we say, this cup points to the fact that Christ's blood was shed for us. So in remembrance of him, we take it. In remembrance of him, we drink it. So actually, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you wouldn't identify yourself in that way, if you haven't received his gift of life and identified yourself with him, what you need most is not a a ritual here in the next few minutes. What you need most is to believe and to pray for Jesus Christ to save you. And some of you have done that. You just never told anybody. And I'm going to tell you, like, go public with that. Why would you hide that when Christ came very publicly for you? But as we take this, for those that are followers of Jesus Christ, we're saying we believe. We entrust ourselves to Jesus. We believe this is what he did for us because we needed to be rescued. We could not rescue ourselves. And today, I think even on another level, we're saying something else. We're saying even as we take... Jesus, I want you to become greater even, even as that means I become less. I trade in like my small story because I want to be a part of your greater story. In a few moments, the, the deacons are going to distribute the bread and the juice. And as they do that, maybe you take time to read the rest of John 3. We'll talk about this more next week, but you begin to see who Jesus is and begin to meditate on that. 
Or maybe you'll, you'll uh, sing along as the worship team leads us. But let me pray that God would use this time to humble us, to still us, and to make us ready to hear from the Lord. Father, I thank you that in your word you speak, but now we come to your table, and I pray that you would speak to us again. Our hearts are open. We might resist at first saying, I want to be at the center. I think I deserve more, but help us to have the heart that John led us to this morning. I thank you for his words to us. I thank you for your spirit making those come alive to us. Thank you that we can eat and drink because of what you've done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.